वसुदेवसुत कंसचाणुरमर्दनम देवकी परमानंदम कृष्णम वंदे जगद्गुरु so in the bhagavad gita we were studying the second chapter the teaching about the atman has been given our real nature now what about our life it's an important question can you hear me everybody huh? the work that we do are we supposed to give it up spend our lives uh, listening to gita classes and then the rest of the time meditating because that's what a monk does so only in quote unquote spiritual uh, activities what about the rest of our life so sri krishna says no you don't have to give up the activities in fact you must do work how to spiritualize our life that's the next subject and that is the subject of karma yoga how to spiritualize our life and the central verse in karma yoga was um, is verse number 47 this is what we were doing last time and it's so important i couldn't complete it last time i had a number of observations to make so i'll make them uh, now 47th verse let's repeat it again please chant after me karmanevadhikaraste karmanevadhikaraste ma phaleshu kadachana ma phaleshu kadachana ma karma phalahe turbhu ma karma phalahe turbhu माते संगोस्त्व कर्मणि माते संगोस्त्व कर्मणि यू हैव द राइट टू एक्शन अलोन नॉट टू द रिजल्ट्स ऑफ द एक्शन डू नॉट एक्ट फॉर गेटिंग द रिजल्ट्स ऑफ द एक्शंस एंड डू नॉट गिव इन टू इनएक्शन इदर दिस इज द मीनिंग ऑफ द वर्ड्स नाउ i counted i had a I, i had 10 observations to make so i'll quickly run through them i had made some of them last time but doesn't matter karma action a very important subject in vedanta the law of karma or the doctrine of karma is that causes have consequences so whatever we are experiencing in our lives are the consequences or in the language of gita the fruits of action fruits results or fruits of action phalam in sanskrit and these are the consequences of causes we have done something in this life or in past lives um the causes are karma action so action and result or fruit of fruit of action karma and phalam karma is action phalam is uh, result of action and um we know this the usual way the law of karma is understood is by the way i'm saying law of karma it's uh, if anybody wants to be nitpicking it's not really a law in the sense of uh, physics law or or a, or a scientific law you can call it a doctrine of karma if you will the way it's usually stated is good leads to good and bad to bad so consciously done moral action dharma leads to merit punyam and that results in something pleasant happening to us sukha so the equation is dharma punya sukha uh, good action merit pleasant result and uh, the opposite is also true consciously done unethical action adharma demerit in sanskrit papa and another word could be sin and the result is dukkha suffering so adharma papa dukkha now notice one thing um in this chain the first and the last terms we can see we can we can see the 
a good or bad action because it's obvious we do it and we see people doing it and we see the results also in our lives and the lives of others good and bad things happen in between is the point where uh, it, it is a matter of, uh, of uh, faith or teaching that there is a merit generated or there is a demerit generated you don't actually see the the punya or papa the, the uh, merit or demerit now the point I want to make in this is we have a choice about the karma and no choice about the phalam. This verse also makes, makes the point. You have a right to the karma means we have a choice to, about the karma. What we are going to do about that we have a choice. But the result of that we don't have the choice. Specifically the results which are coming to us now they are generated by past karma. And so we have no choice about that. They are going to come to us now. Um, as Vivekananda writes, none escape the law, good, good, bad, bad. There is a little bit of a choice about the, about the future. Depending on what we do now, the result, we will get um, results accordingly in the future, in this life or the next. But even there, there is not much choice. Our action will definitely determine the result, but the result is not just a consequence of our action. There are many other factors involved. So therefore, with regard to past karma, we have no control over the, there is no choice. With regard to future results, the karma we will do now will partially determine the results in the future. So this is one observation. The second observation which follows from this is immediately free will. Yes. The, this whole verse, in fact all of religion, morality, in, indeed civilization, depends on us having free will. Do action, when, when, the, when the do proper action, do moral action, do ethical action, action without desire, what, whatever the teaching is, it implies that we have the free will. If I do not have the free will, what's the use of telling me to do this or that? So, the teaching of karma yoga involves free will. I know we have discussed this uh, many times earlier and usually the teaching has been in, in the ultimate analysis uh, in depth when you, when you analyze it. We really do not have free will. That's a nice philosophical discussion to have and indeed there is truth there and indeed one day we may come to the mystical realization that God alone does everything but until that time the teaching is that consider that, that accepted that you have free will and act accordingly. Let alone spirituality and religion, let alone karma yoga. As I said, um, religion, morality, ethics, our entire legal system, nothing is possible unless we, uh, we, are, we assume that people have free will. How can you charge somebody with a crime if there is no free will? If a person says, I did not have a choice, I had to do it. If somebody compelled me to do it with a gun to my head, then you cannot charge me for the crime. So that means my free will was taken away from me. Now supposing like, the, for example, you have these insanity arguments. Basically, what are those arguments? On grounds of insanity, you cannot charge uh, this person. You can put him in a mental institution and treat him, but you cannot charge him with the crime. Why? Because the underlying argument is that the person did not have free will, normal free will at least, as everybody else said. So free will is something that is accepted in every religion as a practical matter. All those discussions we have had earlier, and I know in the Gospel of Sri Ramakrishna, he questions the fact whether we have truly have free will. It Ultimately, God does everything. True. Yeah, that is that's there, but for practical purposes, take it that we have free will, and a corollary of this is that spiritual progress is possible in the human birth. This free will which we are talking about, um, it is assumed that animals do not have it. Even the higher animals do not have it. Choice about karma, doing good action consciously, requires free will. Human beings have it. So we have the power to choose and do the right thing. Animals, and then we have no choice over the results. The results we have no choice, we have, to, uh, we have to accept the results of our actions. But animals have no choice either about the result of action or about action also. The action they do is guided by instinct, 
and the result they're getting is because of the past karma which has generated a, a animal body for them um, that means for the sentient being dwelling in that animal body. So the animal births, lower births, no free will. Um, they are only meant for burning out the results of past karma. Third observation. I mentioned this last time. The importance of concentration or focus. I do not know really if the original intention was this in the verse. But uh, um, one of the commentators... Uh, Ram Sukhdasji in his Hindi commentary has pointed out, notice we do all kinds of work but the grammatical uh, uh, number here is singular number. Karmani. Karmani evadhikaraste. Karmani is, single, uh, is, is um, singular, not plural. In the work. You have the right to the work. That means one thing at a time. The importance of focus is 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 um, is something that will take a separate talk to talk about. Swami Vivekananda, for example, he said the difference between an ordinary person and a great person lies in the degree of concentration. So that, that's the importance he gave to concentration. Whatever you do, take up one thing and pour your heart into it, one thing at a time. So this is not at all the philosophy of Manhattan. Multitasking. <laughs> As much as possible. I know it's not not all that easy at all. Uh, you have to do a lot of multitasking. But there was a whole issue of Time magazine on concentration and multitasking. It's cover cover story. And they went and interviewed important people, corporate executives, presidents of universities. How do they handle so much workload? What are the strategies? The one I remember was. And the, I think it was the president of Harvard University at that time, so one of the top Ivy League universities. So the Time Magazine reporter goes into the office and he describes that there are files all over the place, on the floor, on the table. And, and then uh, he asks, what's your strategy to deal with your paperwork? And the, the uh, president said, um, I asked them to put it on my table and then... Um, after some time, when it gets too much, I push it on into the floor. <laughs> and if nobody comes and yells at me, I don't do anything about it. <laughs> Somebody comes and yells at me, I say, okay, find your work there, I'll, I'll get it done. So I think, uh, I like the philosophy, very nice. <laughs> um, so anyway, the point is, I will not dwell too much on it, but in today's world, the importance of focus, Daniel Goleman, uh, who wrote the, who became famous because he coined the term emotional intelligence, EQ. So he wrote a number of books on emotional intelligence, but his latest book is on focus. The name of the book is Focus. Uh, he says that's what in this digitally distracted age we lack most. Anyway, let it be. That's the third observation I wanted to make. Karma Yoga, it is true that Karma Yoga uh, involves focus. Scattered mind, distracted mind, whatever the person may be, is not a karma yogi. So many such stories. I remember a story told to me by Suhitanandaji, Swami Suhitanandaji. Uh, he was the abbot of the monastery where I joined the order. He served Swami Premeshananda, who was a disciple of the Holy Mother. And Swami Premeshananda in his lifetime was recognized as an enlightened person, Brahma Jnani, knower of Brahman. Anyhow, now there's an, there's an interesting little, a tiny little incident which Suhitanji told me about Swami Premeshananda. Swami, the, the old Swami was practically an invalid. He had to be taken out on a wheelchair for his daily, you know, um, I can't say it, walk, roll outside. <laughs> now one day they were going past the... Uh, like the garden and there was a worker in the garden who was cutting a tree with an axe and um, this old Swami he said stop stop and he asked the worker what are you doing said, cutting the tree Swami but look every stroke is in a different place uh, just a little bit up down sideways and then this old Swami who is invalid hands are shaking he said give it to me and he takes it and gives a few strokes there. Every stroke is clean and neat and exactly and precisely in the same place. I'd forgotten that story until now. <laughs> we just so that, that is karma yoga. 
another story I remember about the Shankaracharya of uh, of um, Shringeri, I think, um, the earlier one. So he was interviewed by uh, this Bhavan's Journal magazine. So there the interviewer, uh, the, the interviewer says that I was talking to the Shankaracharya and he was an answering my questions. So the Shankaracharya is the pontiff of a traditional uh, monastery, a very old monk. So question answer is going on and behind him somebody was putting up a, a, a photo like this, was, was uh, putting in nails and putting the photo on the wall. And suddenly the Shankaracharya stopped in the middle of the interview and looked back at that person and he said, the uh, last nail is not driven in properly. <laughs> that person looked surprised, what do you mean? And the Shankaracharya said, I may be wrong about the figures, I forgot a long time ago, but he said, the first, the four nails were there and it, it placed the photo like that. The first nail you hit it 22 times, the second one 18 times, the third one again 17 times, but the last one only 15 times. Now imagine that, <laughs> he is talking to this person and yet so alert, he registers everything. That's a sattvic mind, the Gita says, Sarva Dwareshu Prakasham Upajayate, as if every sense organ uh, is illumined, lit up. <coughs> About our uh, president of our order, the tenth president, Swami Vireshwarananda Ji. He was a tiny, tiny uh, figure of a man. When he passed away, he was only 26 kgs, I heard. That's what, 50 pounds? Yeah. And he was, he was tiny. But um, the monks, the old monks who, know, who knew him, they said that it's like every cell of his body was like a computer chip or something like that, you know. He's so alive with everything radiated intelligence. Now, karma yoga, focus. Moving on, again this is something I would mentioned, I will qu quickly move on. Sattva Rajas Tamas, I will not translate those terms, I hope we are most, mostly we are familiar with it. It is from Sankhyan Cosmology. Look, there are three options presented here. Um, no work, giving up the work which Arjuna wanted to do. He wanted to, I won't do this, this is, uh, I'm going to stop fighting this war. This is one. Another option is, do the work with desire. I want something, therefore I'm doing it. That's the way of the world. That's karma, but it's not karma yoga. The third one is, do the work as a worship of the Lord or as discharging one's duties without any uh, personal motive there without desire for the results. That is Karma Yoga. So three, three things. Action without desire, action with desire, that is prompted by desire. And the last one is giving up action. Giving up action is tamasic, tamas, laziness. It has no worldly or spiritual benefits at all. This destructive. The second one is action with desire, rajasic. That's the way of the world and the result of rajas is bondage. One gets caught in samsara. An ultimate result is suffering. And the third one is uh, action without desire, that is sattvic. Sattvic which purifies the mind. So that is karma yoga. And also in all three cases do not be attached. Do not be attached to laziness, sleepiness, dullness, destructiveness. Do not be attached to um, passionate fulfillment of desires. I know I'm running contrary to our <laughs> uh, the wisdom of today's world, but that is karma. This is karma yoga. Not do not be attached to passionate fulfillment of desires. Uh, running from getting this to getting that to doing this to achieving that. So that is rajasic karma. But do not also be attached to the results of sattva which is a kind of peace of mind, a quietness and happiness which comes out of the purity of mind generated by sattva, there also at happiness should, uh, attachment should not be there. I will not repeat it, but last time I think I told you the story of the three decoits, the three robbers. So one must not be, one must transcend the three gunas. How? Move from tamas to rajas 
to sattva. That means from inaction, laziness, dullness, if that is there, then bring in dynamism, energy, get up and, and be about your business, do something. And when uh, action is there, try to make it more, uh, get, get serenity, evenness of mind and do it as ded dedicated to God, not for the fulfillment of my selfish desires. That is from sat uh, tamas to rajas to sattva. I also mentioned the point about disinterested action and uninterested action. The question is often raised, it comes to everybody's mind. This whole business of doing work without desire, why should I do anything without desire? How can I do anything without desire? So, disinterested action, not uninterested action. Usually we do something well because I'm going to get something out of it. But I will do something well, I don't want anything personal out of it. I'm doing it for the greater good as a worship of God. So in that sense, uh, that is disinterested action. That is, I don't have a, an axe to grind. I don't have a personal motive behind the action. Um, sixth point, um, this also I had mentioned. The two things, what is our attitude? One thing is karma work that we are doing, second thing is the results of karma, what we are experiencing in life. How do you spiritualize these two? Karma you spiritualize in this way, all my action henceforth, because I am a seeker after liberation, I am a seeker after enlightenment, so all my action henceforth is spiritual. It is a worship of my Lord. I am doing it as a worship of God, only for the to please uh, please my lord to please my beloved that's my only only purpose in doing this action that's for a person who is um, devotionally oriented bhakti oriented suppose a person is not so oriented only on the path of knowledge all right this action i am doing i'm fulfilling my duties acting altruistically for the welfare of others without any personal acts to grind so that i will get chitta shuddhi purity of mind do you remember the matrix of spiritual practice? Uh, three by three matrix? Good. Only a few people nodded. <laughs> Don't worry, I'll keep referring back. I'll tell you once in a while again. So, uh, my attitude for karma is, karma from now on, all the action from now on, is meant for God-realization now. How can I spiritualize this action? How can I connect it to God? That is my purpose now. Second, what about the bhoga, that means the experience of the results of action. How can I spiritualize that? Things are happening to me, good and bad things throughout the day. How do I deal with that? You see in karma two things are there, action and its result. So what I am doing is action and what is happening to me throughout my days and months and life, that is result of action. How do I spiritualize the result of action? My attitude should be uh, that uh, especially the problem is with suffering. So when, I'm, when the result of action, my, my, I'm suffering uh, due to some bad action in my past, I do not know, but unpleasant things are happening to me. How do I spiritualize that? Well, first of all, it's a sign that my bad karma is getting exhausted. should be happy. <laughs> my bad debts are being burnt off. Um, second, it's a very good occasion to remember God. Every suffering, immediately turn to God. Offer the suffering to the Lord and take refuge in the Lord. That thou art my strength. I'm holding on to that. In whichever form we like. Third, it's also a warning. But this pain I'm suffering because in some sense, somewhere I must have done something immoral. Let me be careful for in, the, in the future. Then, the seventh point, seventh observation, Krishna says, Ma Phaleshu. Do not be, you do not have a right to the Results. Do not be attached to the results. You do not have a right to the results. The meaning, direct meaning is this, that we really do not have a right to the results. Because the result of our action is a product of many factors. Not just us. So
so many other people are contributing to the result of my action. I may sow the seeds, the farmer may sow the seeds in the, in the field, but um, the rain is contributing, the, the germs and the, and the bacteria in the, in the field are contributing, the worms in the field are contributing, um, the soil and the air, everything contributes to the coming up of the crops. So the result is not entirely, uh, the farmer cannot claim that I am doing it. Only a part of it. So if I do it, it's not, if I take, if I appropriate the results, that's a good word, if I appropriate the results, I did it, so I, de I deserve this. And this is, what, this is the result of my action. It's not honest. It's not really honest. But there's a deeper reason why Krishna says you do not have, or I do not claim the results for yourself. This is psychologically, in, in a, in, inwardly do not claim the results. Certainly if you are doing a job and your boss sends a paycheck to your bank, you don't say that I'm not claiming the results anymore. <laughs> you will confuse the IRS and your boss also. That will come. But internally, that uh, I don't appropriate it. Why? Now, why not? You see, when I want the results of my actions, um, it's because I want to enjoy something. Some desires I want to fulfill. In Sanskrit, this is called bhoktritva. The uh, trying to enjoy certain pleasures in the world, certain, get some satisfaction from the world. Now this bhoktritva, this uh, trying to enjoy things in the world, this generates this doership. In Sanskrit, kartritva. Kartritva means agentship. I do. I want to do these things. Why? To satisfy my desires. Why? So that I will enjoy certain things. So enjoyership leads to doership. Enjoyership lights the flame of doership. Bhuktritva leads to kartritva. When I eliminate my desires, when I reduce the flame of bhuktritva, the heat generated, the, the, you know, the, the result is that kartritva, the agentship also goes down. I don't know if I made that clear. This desire to enjoy things, is enjoy the results of karma. That is called bhaktritva. Um, enjoyership. That actually generates the desire to do things. Kartritva. And that um, doing things for satisfying my desires, that's the very nature of worldly karma. That's how we get caught. So to reduce that kartritva, you have to reduce the desires there. Don't be attached to the, the fruits. Grasping the results of action, grasp, usually we try to grasp the pleasant results. Nobody wants to grasp the <laughs> uh, unpleasant results. So we, when we try to grasp that, I want these goodies coming to me. After all, they are, they are the results of my past karma. So why shouldn't I? I have a right to them. Yes, you have a right to them. But the more you try to catch hold of them, the more you try to enjoy them, the more you will generate further desire to do things and get results. So the upshot is this. Minimize des uh, desires. Minimize trying to get happiness from the world. A simple life, in other words. Uh, a kind of simple Spartan life, as far as possible. Alright, now we come to the crux. The eighth observation is how then, how can we reduce desires? Hold on to the question. Let me finish this. This is an important observation. How can we reduce desires then? This is a question. People will ask this. So, one can um, discuss this endlessly, but a very f a quick observation. Some things I have collected from here and there. How can we reduce desires? Think upon these four things. To reduce desires, think upon these four things. One is, the moment that I have a desire, I have generated a void, an incompleteness, a gap within myself. Does that make sense? Apurnatvam in Sanskrit. I have consciously agreed to, I am not complete anymore. It happens without thinking about it. I just feel this lack. But this lack is not, it did not come by itself. Behind this it is, a, it is a desire. And that that desire, I have control over it. I have assented to it. Often 
You said nobody asked me to sign. When, when did I sign uh, for the desire? It, it happened by default. We, we see an advertisement and this is nice. Uh, Friday sale, no? Black Friday sale. <laughs> it was not there earlier. The advertisement is there and it creates a desire in my mind, oh some nice things will be there. I must go and queue up and stand in, in a long, long queue. <laughs> An incompleteness, apurnatvam is generated in me. That's, remember, that's one first, the first thing to remember is that. And the second thing to remember is that um, one becomes, one loses independence. We are basically going around with a begging bowl to the world, make me happy, make me happy, make me happy. We lose independence. Every time, every desire that I have, I lose independence. Is it worth it? We think it's worth it. Never is. Till now it has not been. In everybody's life. So we lose independence. Swami Vivekananda put it this way. Slave to a good word. Slave to a bad word. In everything. Somewhere I want praise from people. I become a slave to it. I react with anger and uh, unhappiness when somebody criticizes me. Again a slave to it. Lose independence. So in modern uh, psychology, there is a, there is something called cognitive behavior therapy. Uh, uh, earlier it was called rational emotive behavior therapy, REBT. So there they say uh, we have, if you actually write down the assumptions behind our desires, our demands. It looks so silly. I get upset because somebody said a nasty word to me. You know what's the, why did I get upset? The, what is the assumption behind that becoming ups, upset? The assumption is this, if, if I write it down, nobody ever should be nasty to me. That's the assumption. If you write it down, that's so silly. Nobody ever should say a bad word to me. Why? How is that even possible? If I write it down, it seems silly, but it's unexpressed way it is there as a seed behind in, in my mind. That's why I get so upset. So the second thing is I lose my independence. Think about this. The third thing to think about is desires, if they are not fulfilled, will lead to frustration and unhappiness. Simple fact, but a big source of unhappiness in our lives. If my desires are not fulfilled, it will lead to unhappiness. The moment I sign up for a desire, I am signing up for unhappiness. Because most desires in some way or the other will remain unfulfilled. Or we will get frustrated at some turn or the other. So it, it leads to unhappiness. Frustration, unfulfilled desires lead to frustration and unhappiness. Think about that. And uh, the last thing of course is, the fourth thing to think about is, when you cultivate desires, they keep on increasing. There is no end to what are called vasanas, the, the uh, impressions in our mind which generate desires. The more we try to satisfy them, the more they spread and proliferate. In uh, Hindu mythology, we have the story of Yayati, the king who uh, wanted to enjoy all sorts of sensuous pleasures, pleasures in life, then became old and sick and couldn't do so anymore. And then he made a kind of Faustian deal with his son, that you are a dutiful son. The prince said, yes, give me your youth. You become old for some time. I want to enjoy more. And then again, he went on in, uh, enjoying the pleasures of uh, life uh, in that young body for decades and decades till he realized that there is no way you can come to an end of um, uh, you know get satisfaction out of um, by sensuous pleasure pleasures he says just like at a fire you for you pour ghee ghee is the clarified butter in in vedic sacrifices in ancient india that was the offering they did but the more you pour into it the more the fire blazes forth you can't put out a fire by pouring fuel into the fire so satisfying desires is like that. Trying to get satisfaction by fulfilling desires is like that. You're just making the fire burn brighter. Um, we always think one more thing and then I'm done. We think that. You know, just, I've just a few things I want then I'm set for life. I really don't have any more big things after that. No, we do. <laughs> There's no end to it. 
a very touching story of a Buddhist monk. He was an Englishman. He became a Buddhist monk. And uh, he writes this story. He says, when I was a little kid, um, my mom was a, a single parent, so she struggled to bring us up and we didn't have much money. So every day in the village, I would go to go home from school and walk home and pass the store, a shop. And I would longingly look at the things and I knew we were poor, we didn't have the money. But once there was this very nice toy car. And so he said, I just used to stand there at the store and look at it longingly. And I would go and nag my mother for it. But I knew there was no chance because we were poor. One day I was walking past the store and the car was no longer there. Somebody had obviously bought it. And I sadly thought maybe some other kid has got it. When I went home, I saw that my mother had bought it for my birthday. And she had put it there. The thing is, the catch is this. I had been nagging my mother all the time saying, Mom, buy me that thing and I'll never ever ask you for anything in my life. <laughs> never ever ask you for anything in my life. So when my mom gave it to me and she said, remember your promise, never ever anything in your life. <laughs> and of course, I was delighted, I played with it, but just as it happens with every kid, I played with it for a few weeks, then maybe once in a week and then it, one of the wheels came off and my mother never threw it away. She put it on top of an Almira, it stayed there collecting dust. But whenever, as I grew up, I asked for something, she would point to that, that <laughs> and I knew what she, she meant. And then he writes, it's so touching that he became a Buddhist monk later on. And he said he has come back because his mother passed away. And uh, her, his mother, in, the, in this, uh, the ceremony, when the, mother's, the coffin is going to be buried, he got that toy and he put it in his mother's coffin. <laughs> it was a great lesson that my mother taught me. There is no end to this. Never ever. This is not the way to satisfaction. So remember these things when trying to reduce desire. Will it work? It helps <laughs> to remember these things. A deeper philosophical point. Karma and the result of karma are anitya, impermanent. Every work has a beginning and an end. Every result, good or bad, has a beginning and an end. But the self, you, Atma, is Nitya, eternal. The you, the eternal self, you have no connection with the non-eternal karma. It appears and goes with the non-eternal result of karma also. It can do nothing for you. It's a very deep lesson to learn. Karma fundamentally can do nothing for the Atma. Then what is the use of all the karma that we are doing? The ultimate use of karma is, it will lead to knowledge. It will lead to experience and knowledge which will finally set us free. We are trapped in samsara now, we, have to, we think we are body-mind complexes. So today I was at Columbia University and um, they have a seminar, two-day seminar, today and tomorrow on a way to the truth, meditative traditions, uh, mostly in, in the Western tradition, um, some Sufi tradition also. So I wanted to learn something more about this. It's very nice. A lot of scholars have come from different uh, universities and they're giving a talk. So one was on the Greek Plotinus, one talk. And the entire talk was, what exactly is the soul in Plotinus? When, because see, they've translated it as soul. So soul is, is it well, it's obviously not the body, but is it the faculties of the mind? Is it just the faculties of the mind or something apart from the faculties of the mind? Identified with the faculties of the mind? I made the point that in uh, Vedanta, this, this, thing, this solution is very clear because Atma, mind and body are three things. And you can, to, for understanding, we make them into three categories. So the word soul is ambiguous. You see, when you say, he's a good soul, what do you mean? This person has a good character, is a nice person, has a nice personality, is kind and affable. Those are the characteristics of the mind, of the subtle body. But when you say immortal soul, when you use the word immortal soul, you mean the Atma, the, the spiritual self. So the English word soul is ambiguous. It can refer to the spiritual self, it can refer to our minds. Karma, what the point I want to make here is, karma, the only use of, real use of karma is, karma leads to knowledge, ultimately. 
karma will through spiritual practices and all ultimately knowledge will come that we are spiritual beings we are not body mind the soul is the spiritual soul not the mind so this knowledge is the ultimate goal of all spiritual practices including karma yoga the um ninth point i wanted to make is as he says mate sangostu akarmani do not give in to inaction that can happen um giving up action the most common thing is people become interested in spirituality buddhism vedanta or something and say i don't like all this anymore my worldly say i want to give it all up <coughs> don't if you want to become a monk fine but that's only for a few people who will go into a monastic life but there also in any good monastery will immediately be put to work so there will be work there also a lot of work um the work that we do in the world maintaining your own self uh, taking care of a family job your community work all of that it is not harmful for spiritual life done properly it is an aid to spiritual life convert that into karma yoga it will be a great great sadhana spiritual practice a spiritual practice god doesn't want us to be trapped in samsara god wants us to be free so how do you convert our action into spiritual practice that's the teaching of karma yoga do not give in to inaction there are lots of such people uh, especially among i've seen monks in india wandering monks they end up being nothing better than a little better than beggars sometimes sometimes not not all of them some of them are very good but it's not easy to live a life like that very soon one becomes it becomes an indolent kind of life that is inaction and that does not give rise to any kind of worldly benefit obviously not or spiritual benefit so inaction is no good as far as our worldly life is concerned and certainly no good as as far as our spiritual life is concerned so sri sri krishna says do not give in give in to inaction laziness um just being tamasic indolent i uh, another reason for this giving up work is the way vedanta is taught gyana yoga the path of vedanta knowledge and dhyana yoga the path of meditation is usually privileged above karma yoga so the way it is taught is do you remember the matrix i, I made the, the lowest rung the base is karma yoga then comes meditation then comes knowledge so we, we get the feeling that look karma is sort of a lower kind of practice i want to do the higher kind of practice the sophisticated kind of practice swami ashokananda uh, he says in one of his talks in san francisco i know some of you think that the swami is telling me to do karma yoga he thinks the swami thinks i am not fit for meditation well i'll show him and then ashokan ji says well you will show me not in the way you think <laughs> you, you will show me let me show you will show that i am right that's what you going to show the last one just uh, a point about the doctrine of spiritualized service which which is at the foundation of our order shiva gyane jeeva seva serving all sentient beings knowing them to be god serving all sentient beings knowing them to be god this is the highest form of karma yoga look the basic form of karma yoga here what krishna is teaching arjuna is convert your worldly activities and religious activities all of them into karma yoga do it as duty do it as as uh, as an offering to god that becomes spiritual but here swami vivekananda um he got this idea from sri ramakrishna this teaching so not just doing your duties as a worship of god but every action in fact service to all beings knowing them to be god so not just my duties just just my work but service becomes a way of life that um, the the motto here we have for our order 
Atmano Mokshartham Jagatitaya Cha for one's own liberation and for the welfare of the world. For one's own liberation and for the welfare of the world. If you ask a monk of our order, what's the goal of your life? What are you doing in life? For my own liberation and for the welfare of the world. Um, very quickly, this serving all beings. So in our order we have uh, spiritual teaching is of course one form of service, what we are doing here. So my attitude here is, I am serving God in the form of everybody by this teaching. So this is my service, it's my service to God. It's not I am a guru teaching students, not that. That's not the attitude in our order. But also we have educational services, in, in especially in India you can see. Our order is well known for schools and colleges and university. Uh, there are medical services, hospitals and dispensaries. Uh, we have um, famine and earthquake and fire relief. Wherever there is a disaster, disaster relief. So all kinds of relief activities, um, educational activities, medical activities. They are all, the philosophy behind it is we are not doing social work. In the Ramakrishna order, when we do karma, it's karma yoga, not in the sense of social work. Shiva, Jnana, Jiva, Seva. Service to all sentient beings, knowing them to be God. Now there are three dimensions of this, quickly. The first dimension is, it's karma yoga. When you are serving, serving is karma yoga. So service is karma yoga, so it's, it's work, it's karma yoga. But this same thing is also... Um, upasana or worship, meditation. Because when you feel that all beings are God, or you're trying to imagine or develop this attitude in the mind, when I'm offering medicine to a patient, I have seen a monk going into a classroom to teach kids, teaching geography or something like that. But before going in, where nobody, he thought nobody could see, he bows down like this. So I asked him, why are you oh, um, bowing down? He says, I bow down to Sri Ramakrishna in the form of these little children. So that's his attitude. Now that's meditation. This meditation in action. I am creatively, using my power of imagination, creatively visualizing my Lord in the form of all this. So whether it's teaching kids in a classroom, whether it's offering medicine to um, the patients in a hospital, or food to the hungry, so on. But you, are, you see, see the presence of God in them. So it's, it's worship, it's meditation, upasana. And finally, it's also knowledge. Notice the, the, the language. Knowing them to be God. Not imagining them to be God. Not believing them to be God. Serve all beings, knowing them to be God. Not imagining, not believing. Knowing them is jnana. According to Vedanta, it is a fact that they are all God. All of them are none other than Brahman. It's my fault that I do not see it, I do not realize it. But if it's a fact, then knowing them to be God, serve all beings. So this Shiva Jnani Jiva Seva, this doctrine of service, spiritualized service. This is Karma Yoga, this is Upasana or Bhakti Yoga plus Raja Yoga. And this is Jnana Yoga also. All the four yogas are in this doctrine of service. So this is Karma Yoga at its most uh, expanded, sophisticated form. If somebody had their hands up, if you still remember your, qu your question. Otherwise, whenever you remember it. Now, moving on. Um, so these are the ten observations I had. Good. Next verse, 48. Yes. Yes. Yeah, she's asking how do you reconcile because uh, primitive life forms predated human life uh, for millions of years. So basically the question is how do you reconcile evolution with this? What you're trying to ask is specifically in this case, then there must have been millions of years where there were only um, life forms without free will. Right? So is that what you're asking? Yes. From 
Yes. Before us. Oh, okay. So you must remember the uh, Hindu cosmological cycle. It's not the first time that we have we are uh, we have been uh, we are coming around here. We have been around. We have passed through this place many times earlier. So <laughs> the uh, uh, Hindu cosmological uh, idea is cyclical. So not only Hindu, Buddhist. The ancient idea was that uh, from Brahman with Maya, the entire universe expands from that. And you can factor in evolution, the appearance of life, higher and higher bodies. Um, the same sentient beings which existed in the past cycles are still there, those who have not yet got freedom or, or mukti. So they, they get embodied in those animal bodies, bacteria bodies, amoeba bodies, whatever, until better bodies, better models are available for them, human bodies, where they can exercise free will, generate new karma and this goes on for billions of years you might say that you are now saying billions of years because we have got this new idea by because of cosmology and no the ancient Hindu uh, scale of time actually was in billions of years I rem uh, do you remember Carl Sagan's when we were, when we were kids there was this um, um, TV serial Cosmos a very nice we were kids, we used to watch that. Now, there's a book also on that. And Carl Sagan writes there that the ancient man's or ancient or medieval idea of time was very limited. So he thought, thought in terms of 5,000 years or 10,000 years. But now our modern physics, uh, geology, talks in terms of millions of years. Uh, cosmology talks in terms of billions of years. So our idea of time and space has expanded vastly and then he adds there is only one other scale which is equally st was even more stupendous and that was the ancient Hindu scale of time where they talked about mm, billions and trillions of years and cycles of universes so we have been around many times and they say from beginningless time we are striving towards uh, spiritual evolution and freedom so what happens? The universe is created. We are all there, but not in a physical form. Until we have bodies, we will not be manifest in a physical form. We are there in a subtle form. And as we get proper bodies, you know, life evolves on planets, then we get those bodies, and then we start evolving. We evolve means the uh, nature evolves. Better and better bodies are found. And then we have human bodies, we have uh, free will. <coughs> And this cycle goes on. In this cycle, many people will, many of these sentient beings get freedom. They will not be part of the cycle anymore. Many do not. And the universe comes to an end, billions of years later. So they all are withdrawn back into the Maya of Brahman. For an unimaginable period, so there is no time anymore once the universe comes to an end. Again the universe starts again and the ones who have not got freedom are projected back into the universe to play the game again. So this is the stupendous idea of Hindu cosmology. Advaita Vedanta adds, don't worry. This is, <laughs> none of it is true. <laughs> you are eternally free. This is a dream that you are dreaming. And if you know it, then, then there is, you realize that it was always alright. It's not a multi-billion year project to become enlightened. Uh, so, yeah, alright. In Mahabharata, I believe Duryodhana once said that he knew he was doing adharma, but he couldn't help it. Hmm. Well, did he really have a free will then? Yes, Duryodhana, the famous uh, uh, verse which Duryodhana said, that janami dharmam nachame pravritti janami adharmam nachame nivritti I know what is right and that's not my problem right and wrong is not my problem I know what is right but I don't feel like doing it <laughs> you can hear it from every teenager <laughs> I know what's wrong I know, I know what I'm doing is bad but I can't prevent myself from doing it I can't help it why not? why not? He says, Kenapi Devena, Hidistitena, Kenapi Devena, Yathani Yojitosmi, Tathakaromi. There is some force within me which uh, forces me to do it, you know, like I do it as I am impelled to do. 
So this is Duryodhana's position. It's a false position. He is just giving up the the, the uh, free will thing. You know, he's just going by the default conditioning. There's a conditioning. So this is a very interesting uh, yoga psychology involved here. Our Past karmas have conditioned us. There are, de there are desires in our subconscious which are bubbling forth. Now as they bubble forth from our subconscious, they come up as little buds in our mind. We are barely aware of them. Then it becomes a desire. I want. Then it gathers power. Then we start pursuing it. Then it becomes unstoppable almost. But before it becomes unstoppable, we have a window of opportunity. Tiny fleeting window of opportunity where there is choice. Arjuna and Duryodhana, this is the difference. Duryodhana gave up his precious free will. Gave up means, I'm not going to use it. He just denied that I have it. It's much easier to float along. Until it's not easy. Until we get kicks and blows. We float alone, then, then the only way, God will not abandon us. If I do not use my free will for my spiritual evolution, then what will happen? Law of karma will take effect. Kicks and blows will come, life will become, God will make it so hard for me, then I will be forced to change my ways. It's much, much more wiser to change it before that. Um, so Arjuna in the Gita, you'll notice, it will come later, he asks almost exactly the same question to Krishna, which Duryodhana had said. Only Duryodhana put it as a uh, fate accompli, that means accomplished fact. Arjuna says, puts it as a question. Arjuna will ask Krishna that um, why do we think, do things which we regret later? Even unwilling, why are we forced, we sort of get as if forced to do things, as if swept away by something within us. A good person, at least a person who thinks of himself or herself as good, does something bad. Why? What is it within us that makes us do this? So he puts it as a question. And how do I come out of this? So this is Arjuna, this is the difference between Arjuna and Duryodhana. This, this little difference, I'm willing to change. I'm willing to listen. I want to make my life better. I'm willing to come to the Friday class. <laughs> That's the difference. That's the difference. I'm, I believe that there is a way, something is there in, to spiritual life. And I'm willing to try it out. So, and then Krishna says, past conditioning, he says, Kama esha, krodha esha, rajoguna samudbhava, anger and lust, born of rajas, this is the enemy, this uh, forces, this sweeps away even the best of intentions. Do not give way to them. Do not give in to them. Do not give in to anger. Do not give in to lust. Do not give in to greed. That means we have free will. If we had no option at all, then the, the teaching is useless. But we have that option. In uh, Yoga Sutras, Patanjali Yoga Sutras, in the, in the commentary to that by Vyasa, there is an interesting insight, a very powerful insight. It says, our deepest desires are in the subconscious mind. When you say give up desires, I am helpless because I have no access to those desires. If I could erase them, delete the files, I could, but I can't. They are out, outside my uh, control, in the subconscious. And they bubble up. And then when they're transformed into action, then it's too difficult to control. I may do it with willpower once, second time I will fail. But, uh, so, so, and then he, the, the commentator says, Evam vritti samskara chakram avartitam aharnisham Day and night rotates this wheel of subconscious impressions and conscious desires. Now, if you entertain those desires, they will go back again to the subconscious and strengthen that desire, that, that uh, conditioning will be strengthened. Nothing very different from what modern psychologists will tell you. Then what do I do? Then what's the way out? The way out is this. When those subconscious desires bubble up into our conscious mind as desires, subconscious conditioning bubbles up as desires. Vasana this conditioning, it bubbles up as a vritti, a desire in the mind. Before it becomes strong, there is a gap, a fleeting window of opportunity where the yogi consciously determines whether this is a helpful desire or not helpful desire. I have made up my mind to be a yogi, I have made up my mind to be a spiritual uh, seeker. Now this desire which is coming, 
should I say give it a green light or give it a red light and say stop and replace it with something positive. It can be done. We do it sometimes actually. But it's a very fleeting um, moment. Uh, if you lose it, it will already be expressed and come up in the mind with such force that once you will fail with uh, willpower, sometimes you will succeed, sometimes you will fail and it becomes a very depressing struggle. Before that, you are not even aware of it. After that window of opportunity, uncontrollable, almost. But that window of opportunity can be used. And there is a lot of material on this. I, I remember a paper presented by uh, a scientist from Nimhans, Institute of Mental Health, on the effects of meditation. One point he made was, in that paper, the results they found, that um, reaction times, it slows down. When there is a, a, the question of a conscious decision, instead of automatic decision, it slows down, allows the neocortex to act, give time to act, and so a conscious decision can be taken. You see, immediately if I if I am not unthinking, I translate my impulses into action, what is called low impulse control. Then there is no time for philosophy, religion, self-control, discipline. No, there is no time. Automatically it will start. By default conditioning we will be operating. But if there is some peaceful mind, calm mind, it will be aware of the desire bubbling up. And before it is translated, before I say something or do something, there is an opportunity of of replacing it with something positive. Now, the cycle is still going on. Remember, the conditioning, desire cycle is going on. If I replace it with something positive, that which I have replaced it with, that positive thing will sink back into my subconscious. If I do it often enough, then the contents of the subconscious itself will be changed. Then you will see at one time, months, years later, what is bubbling up from the subconscious is all positive. I knew this monk who had gone crazy. He had sort of lost his mind. Uh, he would uh, ramble. Um, but, so whatever comes to his mind, he sort of says it outright. But everything that he says is about God. That means the conditioning has been so strong that it's changed for, for, the, for the positive. So it, it can happen. Sri Ramakrishna puts it this way, he would live near the river Ganga and he would see these boats plying and um, the boatmen, they worked very hard with the, uh, there would be the oars to push the boat out to midstream. And then he noticed when the boat is on the midstream and catches the current or the sail unfurls and catches the wind, then the boatman sits down, relaxes, just has his hand on the rudder and on the other hand he smokes a hubble bubble. <laughs> He says in spiritual life, a time comes when the wind becomes favorable, things become easy and natural. You like to get up early in the morning, you like to meditate, you like to study, you like to serve others, you like to think about God and read about God and other worldly things just are irritating for you. Continue. This is a sign of your time to smoke the Hubble bubble. <laughs> Let me just hold on to that, just, just hold on to the question. Let me just... Oh, I don't think we can finish this <laughs> verse, next verse. Alright, then ask the question. Yes, you. Is it critical to have, get rid of all desire from subconscious uh, mind before liberation? No, no, not get rid of desires. We cannot have a, a blank mind. Uh, make the desires about God. Sri Ramakrishna used to say, in Bengali, more period, they turn the, um, how would you put it in English? Um, Turn the direction of the stream. Turn it towards God. So if you must be angry, desirous, loving, angry with God, desirous of God, greedy about God. <laughs> so it could be God, but it could be anything positive uh, about doing things for others, um, about meditating, replacing, um, say, cheap entertainment with something uh, which is uh, edifying or uh, which, which will... Uh, create positive impressions in a number of skillful ways. Yes. Otherwise, um, the mind will not be capable of meditating and will not be capable of uh, retaining this knowledge which we are, the, the knowledge of Vedanta. That ma matrix I told you about, 3 cross 3, so there, uh, this Chitta Shuddhi, purification of the mind is necessary. 
questions quickly, yes. So can any action be performed as karma yoga, so even a uh, stock trader trades for profit? Yes, it can be. Swami Vivekananda says almost any action, almost, he said, almost any action can be done to God or for God. So as long as one is making an honest living, um, you may stretch the definition of <laughs> honesty, but as long as it, as it is moral within the bounds permitted by society, uh, one can do it for God. So I, in that case, you will see in the next verse, we'll say, you m a stock trader is a particularly frantic kind of <laughs> a person, but it can be done. I am doing it for the organization I work for. Mentally, I am, I am up, this is where you have put me, uh, my Lord, this work that you, you have given me. I am doing it to the best of my ability. And now I do it to please thee. And there, success and failure, the place where the stock trader usually has eyes fixed like a hawk all the time. That will matter less. Did I do it well with the attitude of serving the Lord? Good. Then that success and failure becomes secondary. It can be done. The short answer is yes. The Buddha, in the eightfold path. Do you know Buddha taught the eightfold path? Ashtanga Marga, not Ashtanga Yoga, that's different. Ashtanga Marga, Eightfold Path. One of the uh, Eightfold Path, one item is Right Livelihood. There, a commentator makes the point, we keep thinking of Buddha as t teaching the monks. But clearly, when he talks about Right Livelihood, surely it's not uh, a path meant only for monks. Monks is the only one livelihood, they go and beg for their food. So, Right Livelihood means any moral and ethical path that can be spiritualized. Remember, a moral action can also be done for one's own gratification. Usually it is. I'm not violating any rules, but I'm doing it just for my sake or for my family. Then that's karma. But to do it as a worship of God, that becomes karma yoga. Yeah. I've told you the story of how uh, at an airport security checkpoint, um, they stopped me and asked me to give a talk. So, I t <laughs> some of you, some of you must have heard. The, the once they somebody asked me, what's, what what are the five, um, or yeah, f uh, uh, five craziest places you've given talks? <laughs> One of them was this uh, at the airport security checkpoint in India. And they said uh, I was the only passenger, late night flight, connecting flight, and this I was of course dressed like this. So they said, um, Swami, give us a talk. I said, now. Yeah, why not? And they make you stand in on a box and frisk you in India. So <laughs> they made me stand there. And then they call the other security people. They're all armed with guns and stuff. And they come and stand, look at me expectantly. <laughs> so I said, look, it was uh, in Lucknow, which is in Uttar Pradesh. Uh, as people pass through this place, uh, I asked the, the sergeant, uh, said, uh, when you, before you come here, do you do a puja, a worship? So he said, yes, I worship the Lord Hanuman before I come here. When I get out of my house, leave my house in the morning. I said, all right. Throughout the day, as hundreds of people, thousands of people uh, file past you, do your job firmly, respectfully, attentively. And every time you pass one person, let one person go. Mentally offer one more flower at the feet of Lord, your Lord Hanuman. And then he said, was delighted. I said, wow, the whole day I'll be worshipping Lord Hanuman. Wow, Hanuman Ji ka puja. The whole day worship of Lord Hanuman. Yeah, you, you can convert uh, almost uh, everything to, into uh, karma yoga. Alright, let's stop here today. I thought I would do three verses, but as usual. Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Tatsat Shri Ram Krishna Rupanamastu